0: Never such a campaign. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we'll be talking with my ECW colleagues Dan Welch and Kevin Pollack about their new book on Second Manassas. Today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. This episode is brought to you by Civil War Trails, the world's largest open-air museum, offering over 1,500 sites across six states. Civil War Trails puts you in the footsteps of famous generals, freedom fighters, and tenacious women. Follow the great campaigns turn by turn, take a historic hike, and explore beautiful downtowns. Snap a sign selfie along the way. Request your brochure today at civilwartrails.org. Follow Civil War Trails and create some history of your own. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski and joining me for John Pope Love Fest Part 2 is Kevin Pollack and Dan Welch. Fellas, how you been?
1: Good. How are you, Chris? Doing well, thank you very much. Kevin, you live over there? Yeah, if I had known this was the John Pope Love Fest, I think I might have backed out. <laughs> <laughs> well, he says that because he's busy working on the fundraising
2: efforts for the John Pope Equestrian Monument. That will be... Very soon to make an appearance in Northern Virginia.
1: Yeah, all funds donated during this episode will be multiplied by zero, and they will be added <laughs> to <the> five. <laughs> well, that's that's
0: math. I don't know. <laughs> that's really I, know, I know. Now. That's too
1: much for me. Actually, I just fried my brain.
0: <laughs> so Dan and Kevin are co-authors of a new book in the Emerging Civil War series, Never Such a Campaign, The Battle of Second Manassas. We're here to talk about that. But uh, I mentioned John Pope because we did have them on a, an episode earlier last year where they didn't talk about John Pope because they have uh, very uh, different ideas, as you can already tell, about the federal commander at Second Manassas. So I'm sure we'll uh, we'll skate into that territory again tonight. Uh, but first of all, congratulations on the new book.
1: Thank you. It was a long time coming. It was, uh, but it was it was a really fun project to put together. in Second Manassas, I know. I don't want to speak for Dan, but I know he can say the same thing as has become a story that I've really grown to become fascinated by. Uh, and this is just the tip of the iceberg, I think, in terms of giving it another look, at least from my perspective. Uh, it's it's just a really fascinating campaign battle. There's a lot to it for a campaign that's relatively short in duration. But um, yeah, I mean, I, there's just so much intrigue to it. And, and, you know, Manassas Battlefield is a great place to go and see. And really, a lot of the the territory that the campaign traversed is still pretty well preserved for the most part. So you can really follow the roots of the armies throughout August of 1862, which is pretty neat.
2: Yeah, I couldn't agree with Kevin more. I, you know, um, this project, this book in particular, had started several years ago. And we we thank you, Chris, for your patience. And uh, <laughs> we we definitely thank Ted Sabbath for his patience um, between COVID and um uh, we originally started this project with uh, a fellow ECW and ERW member, Rob Orison. And, and Rob got heavily involved in in RevWar projects and his own RevWar books. And Kevin was gracious enough to come on. And um, what, a, what a treat it was, um, the number of conversations that Kevin and I have had over the last year plus working on this project, um, not only on John Pope, but the campaign in general. Um, and I I will definitely agree with him that this is going to be just the tip of the iceberg for him and I as it as it relates to digging into Second Manassas. It is just a huge campaign. Um, there's so many personalities. There's so many far-reaching implications um, that come out of it. And you know, one of the things that that unfortunately happens for Second Manassas is um, you know Kevin's other bailiwick of the Maryland campaign. So it starts so rapidly in the wake of 2nd Manassas and it becomes this, you know, in the historiography in the last 160 plus years, uh, you know, the Maryland campaign has really grown to, to be, you know, one of the campaigns of the Eastern Theater and 2nd Manassas has all been relegated to the, the backwater of the Eastern Theater. So, uh, I, I, you know, again, I don't wanna speak for Kevin, but um, I think this is gonna be the tip of the iceberg for us, perhaps individually as well as collaboratively as we try to bring this story, this large story back into the forefront of the Eastern theater and uh, civil war discussions.
0: There's also just the, you know, first Manassas, second Manassas, and and the first is always the first. And you've got the, you know, the first major battle of the war in the Eastern theater, you've got the Stonewall Jackson story, and that much smaller battle seems to cast a much larger shadow over its much larger second counterpart. Uh, Kevin, tell me a little bit about, you know, why is that phenomenon something that that dogs Second Manassas?
1: Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's hard to say. Um, I, I'll steal a little bit of of what the gentleman who we had the honor of having review our book and write our foreword, John Hennessy, has said, a Second Manassas isn't the beginning or end of anything. It's yeah. just a progression of events in the summer of 1862 in the Eastern Theater. So I think that's one reason. You also alluded to it as well. It's first versus second. Everybody knows the first. And more often than not, uh, I've given many tours of Manassas Battlefield, both of first Manassas and second Manassas. When your general public comes to Manassas Battlefield, they are there for first Manassas. Because if they don't know much about the Civil War, they at least know that the first major battle of the Civil War was at Bull Run or Manassas. They usually know about civilians coming out to watch the battle. They know about Stonewall Jackson, and that's about it. And 1st Manassas has all of that. 2nd Manassas has one of those, and that is Stonewall Jackson. But 2nd Manassas is five times as large in terms of the casualties sustained in three days of fighting in August of 1862 as compared to just 5,000 casualties. I don't mean to say just 5,000 casualties, but lesser uh, than, of course, 2nd Manassas with with 1st Manassas in July 1861. Um, And it is... I mean, you know, it's like a Civil War fashion show, First Manassas as well, with over 200 different uniforms worn between the two sides. Everybody's still figuring this out. And by 1862, what you get is, I think you get two pretty well-oiled machines. Um, I, I like to say, or I, I don't like to say it, but I think it's true. You know, in July 1861, these soldiers are in some cases armed mobs. By the summer of 1862, these armies are good at killing each other. And that's mm-hmm. what they were made to do. And that's what happens at Second Manassas. You know, and I, I think from a, a different standpoint on that,
2: and, and Kevin's points are all spot on um, when we look at the the history of, of these individual engagements and how they've kind of rooted themselves into the American consciousness, you know, it, to a visitor to the modern day Manassas National Battlefield, um, which, you know, the National Park Service has done, you know, just yeoman's work over the years, um, preserving that ground and those stories, You know, when you go to visit First Manassas, you park on Henry Hill, you've got a pretty good understanding and and an ability to see a large majority of where the key fighting moments of First Manassas was located. Sure, you know, you've got to drive out to the stone bridge, um, but from Henry Hill, you can see Matthews Hill, you can see the stone house, you can see, um, you know, uh, uh, Judith Henry's house. You know, you've got a good grasp of the battlefield. that is readily accessible. Second Manassas, however, um, although there are spots that are very easy to get to for the visiting public, Chin Ridge, for example, has its own parking lot. You're right there in in the heart of the action on the afternoon of the 30th, August 30th, 1862. Um, If you were to walk any of the federal assaults on August 29th or August 30th, if you were to, to hike any of the uh, Confederate attacks, you know, Longstreet's Corps on, on the 30th. Um, these are all locations in which you've got to do some literal hiking, um, where there's not necessarily trails to get you everywhere, um, where there is thick, very thick, it almost impregnable second growth forests uh, in the lines of assault for these federal uh, units that, that attack on the 29th and 30th of August. So It's a much more challenging battlefield to visit than first Manassas, even though the the ground is shared um, and the ground is preserved. uh, It takes a lot more work for the the average person to go out and actually hike these routes and follow these units and be able to grasp a larger understanding uh, of the tactics and strategy on August 28th through 30th, 1862.
0: And Kevin, kind of going back to something you said, too, where you characterized the, the armies at First Manassas as mobs moving around the field. And you know, if I were to oversimplify a little bit, um, you know, that, to me, that's that sums up First Manassas really well. Whereas Second Manassas, like there are incredible moving parts from a military history point of view. There is some fascinating stuff happening that you think people would want to sink their teeth into and yet for all these various reasons that both of you have talked about uh they they don't really sink their teeth into it um i I go back to a comment that john hennessy said to me um years and years ago about second manassas uh, and he characterized it as the battle where robert e lee's top lieutenants are all working at the peak of their performance as a unit um and it might so it might not be necessarily jackson's best battle individually or Longstreet's best battle but like Jackson Longstreet and Stewart worked together so well at the peak of their powers. And to me, uh, you know, that was a real key to opening that campaign up for me. Um, yeah. What are ways that the two of you have sort of, you know, discovered something that really shed an important insight on that battle for you, Dan, I'll ask you to, to go mm-hmm. first there. What's, what's a key insight you walked away from?
2: That's a great question. I, and I think there's just so many of them. And I think what Kevin can attest to is, um, the hours upon hours of of phone calls and emails that we've shared during the length of this project where we've had those new insights and and have looked deeper into aspects of this story. Um, For me, I I think uh, as a John Pope fanboy, I I think one of the things, if there are folks that are familiar with this battle, where it falls in the timeline in the Eastern Theater, uh, we know John Pope comes from the West. And he's here, and he has an army, and he takes to Second masses and he's defeated. Uh, he makes these outlandish claims uh, and these general orders, and um, and he's soundly defeated. You know, the, you know the famous line. You know, I've never seen the backs of, of uh, you know, my enemies never seen our backs. You know, the whole background, the whole story of how we get to even get to the start of this campaign. Which, which takes up a good number of pages uh, in our new book, but is essential for understanding, is a part of the campaign history and, and narrative that I think a lot of folks are, are not familiar with. Um, you know, when John Pope comes east, um, you know, and he's offered command of this army on several occasions, he turns it down. He says he, he wants nothing to do with this plan. That the army that, that Lincoln and Stanton are proposing to create for him is, is absolutely in utter ruins and shambles, putting them together um, again, refitting them, um, filling their ranks, training them, and getting them together as a collective fighting force and getting them out to battle in this, this, this timeline that, that Lincoln and Stanton have proposed. He wants nothing to do with it. He knows it's doomed to fail from, from the, the get-go. Um, but yet his hands are almost tied in some of the political wrangling that he has to do with Lincoln and Stanton in this situation, and he's got to make the best best of it as he can, um, including these general orders. I think a lot of folks, you know, when they think about Pope's bombastic, um, you know, where I come from in the West, you know, we don't are we don't talk about lines of retreat and all of this. Um, there's a lot of modern scholarship, including scholarship that that Hennessy had, you know, kind of laid the groundwork for that those orders may not necessarily have been written by Pope or that Pope had any influence in their writing, that those orders had been written in Washington, had been either written by Stanton or Lincoln or both, um, had put some of their stamps and comments on them, gave them to Pope and had Pope issue them. So there's a lot of interest and intrigue um, really from July 1st of 1862 up through the time that Pope comes East uh, and, and eventually gets out in the field with his army. So for me, that period has been incredibly enlightening. Um, I think in the, on the flip side of it as well, um, and, and Kevin may touch on this, I'm not sure, is uh, what's going on with McClellan and the Army of the Potomac at the same time and the communication between McClellan, uh, Henry Halleck, once he arrives to the East. So McClellan to Halleck, um, Pope to Halleck, Halleck and Stanton, um, this, this complex web of, of of political intrigue and fight for military power and control via the telegraph wires. Um, it really sets the stage as a, a phenomenal opening act for what is going to be the second manassas campaign.
0: Kevin, how about you? What are your what was your big enlightening insight?
1: Uh a, a couple things. I think one sort of touching on what, what Dana just mentioned that the Second Manassas campaign is really a hinge point in a lot of ways that the war, you know, could have gone differently, especially in the Eastern theater If you have these two opposing men of John Pope and George McClellan, who everybody knows don't get along with each other. They view each other with a side eye personally. Um, they think the other's out to to gun the other one down, essentially. But, of course, what they represent is more than just two humans. They represent the two differing viewpoints and the two warring viewpoints in the North about what this war is going to be about. John Pope is brought east specifically to try and prosecute a harder war against the Southern home front, against Southern civilians. And that's the very thing that George McClellan was telling Abraham Lincoln not to turn this war into. And so you almost have not only a, a fight for survival with John Pope and the Army of Virginia and the portions of the Army of the Potomac that have joined Pope's army, but you literally have a a fight going on, a symbolic fight going on between... Who's going to win out in this prosecution of the war? How is the war going to be prosecuted by the United States? Is it going to be this harder war that Pope is advocating, or that at least the Lincoln administration might be advocating through Pope, or that McClellan is in turn advocating? And of course, it's quite ironic that ultimately we know Pope's view of the war is going to win out over McClellan's view of the war, but McClellan actually comes out on top after the second Manassas campaign because of Pope's defeat. Uh, at Second Manassas at the battle there. Um, One other piece of intrigue that I thought is, is to me that the campaign is, I mean, the campaign and battle are both fascinating, but the campaign to me is really interesting. And before I had really started diving into the Second Manassas campaign, I thought it was a very complicated campaign. And it it certainly is. Um, Just as a case in point, I mean, really, this campaign doesn't just happen in Central and Northern Virginia. It starts in some ways down along the Virginia Peninsula in June and July of 1862. And what you have is this process of moving McClellan's army of the Potomac off the peninsula, uh, down the peninsula to get boarded up on boats, which is, you know, of course, the start of the peninsula campaign essentially in reverse. And McClellan's army is being moved up to central and northern Virginia, and they have to find Pope's army in the midst of a moving campaign. And they don't know where Pope is, and Pope doesn't know where they are. And Lee is aware that they are joining together. And so it's just this, this great um, complex situation between all sides of the Union armies trying to come together in a moving situation, a moving campaign. And, of course, Lee trying to prevent that. Um, but also with it, it's it's very much a cause and effect campaign. Um, Lee gets word that McClellan starts moving off the peninsula. And so Lee starts shifting his, the weight of his army north of Richmond to try and defeat Pope before the Army of the Potomac and Army of Virginia can unite. Lee decides he's going to go around the left end of Pope's line, down between the Rapidan and Rappahannock Rivers. Pope finds out about that through a a capture of orders at Verdeersville, when he nearly captures Jeb Stuart as well. Pope pulls back behind the Rappahannock River. Uh, Lee tries to to get at Pope behind the Rappahannock River. He's not able to, so he ultimately will send Jackson upriver, from Pope's line, get behind Pope's army uh, at Bristow Station on the night of August 26th. John Pope is going to react to that. And so it's very much just a, once you really boil it down, it's a cause and effect of Lee is going to, to throw one blow. Pope is going to react to that. Uh, Lee is going to then react to what Pope has done, and Pope is then going to have to react to what Lee has done. And, and ultimately, it brings the armies right onto the, the plains of Manassas itself by the end of August.
2: And what's so great about that part of the story that Kevin was sharing is, you know, this cat and mouse game, um, for me, another one of these interesting highlights is is really digging into the historiography of the second Manassas campaign, which is not very deep. There hasn't been many secondary histories written on the battle, um, let alone, you know, primary source material, though, you know, as Kevin talked about the disparity in numbers between first and second Manassas, you would think that that would also equate to a massive increase in primary sources or, um, you know, veterans specifically writing um, accounts just of Second Manassas, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, But when when I was looking at the historiography, you know, one of the things that was so fun about writing this book is is these conversations with colleagues, um, having the opportunity to discuss some of these interpretations with with John Hennessy. No one can uh, no one can write about Second Manassas. No one can understand Second Manassas without the immense amount of work and ground that 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 John has laid uh, for the campaign and the battle thereof. Um, but his you know, his
0: book, uh, Return to Bull Run, we'll give it a little shout out because it's really the yeah. seminal work on on Bull Run, and it's I think the 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 book that all other Second Manassas studies will
2: be measured against.
0: Wherever yeah, we
1: we relied <laughs> you know. on it heavily, that's
0: for
2: sure. Yeah. Yep. You know, and and one of the things that was, you know, as I was talking about, it was great, so fun is is talking about these interpretations. So, you know, as Kevin was talking about this this reactionary match, you know, between Lee and Pope, you know, moving across Virginia, eventually making his way uh, north, where both armies making their way northward. You know, there was this this phenomenal line, one sentence in um, a book by Joseph Harsh, and, and many of us that are familiar with Joe Harsh has probably written one of the you know, best campaign studies on the Confederate Army during the war as it relates to the Maryland campaign. Um, sadly, you know, uh, Dr. Harsh passed away before he was able to to kind of offer the other viewpoint of the Union Army in that campaign, but um, Harsh's book, Taken at the Flood, was just one of three volumes that focused on it, and one of the other volumes that he wrote um, was called Confederate Tide Rising, and Harsh's contention was for you to understand the breadth and scope and nature of the Confederate Army in the Maryland campaign, you needed to understand the larger picture of the Confederate Army and Confederate states and government's war strategy in 61 and 62. And so, you know, he covers many of those battles and campaigns in several pages, and he does for Second Manassas as well. And Harsh contended that John Pope. At every turn in this cat and mouse game, uh, throughout August of 1862, had bested Robert E. Lee on every single occasion, and that Pope has, you know, for all intents and purposes, all the way up through about one o'clock on August 30th, uh, before uh, John John Porter's attack goes forward, um, that Pope has has defeated Robert E. Lee at every single turn, and that by August 30th. Um, you know that's that's when Pope kind of loses touch with reality and sense, Piss John Porter, and thus loses the battle in the campaign for the union effort, union war effort. Um, which after some discussions with with uh, John Hennessy, Hennessy has a different interpretation of that, and uh, Kevin and I have come to our own conclusions. Both of us were were hiking the battlefield in honor of the book coming out uh, just last week, and. You know, even since the book has reached the final phases and went through the printing process and is now out there and hitting, hitting shelves and people's mailboxes, that, you know, my interpretation has changed. I, I, was, I stood behind harsh for most of, most of the time of research and writing this book, but I bump it back now to August 29th. I think by the time of the 30th, Pope's already lost the battle. Um, that, you know, he's bestedly, in at least my interpretive opinion uh, of the content material that he bestedly all the way up through the 29th of, of August of 1862. So, you know, just another great aspect of studying this campaign.
0: Oh, now, when you guys are talking about the campaign writ large. What would you consider to be the bookends of the Second Manassas Campaign, and and I'm particularly interested in in how you see Cedar Mountain uh, as fitting in or not as part of that larger tale. Uh, Kevin, let me have you go first.
1: Yeah, that's that's tough. Um, you know, I think very clearly in the summer of 1862, you can look at at least by our definition, three distinctive military campaigns with the Seven Days Campaign, Seven Days Battles outside of Richmond leading to the Second Manassas campaign that that leads into the Maryland campaign. And I understand the the reasoning for doing that. And of course, as historians and as the public reading history books, we like to have nice solid defined lines as to when things begin and when things end. And in a lot of ways, um I, you know, you, you can in many ways, I think, clump those campaigns together almost all as one. Yeah. Um now, there is some, some break time, if you will, between, especially between the Seven Days Battles and the Second Manassas Campaign, but you really can't understand, the more and more I started studying the Maryland Campaign, and this is why I've kind of been drawn to the Second Manassas Campaign, is you can't understand the Maryland Campaign without understanding Second Manassas, and you can't understand the Second Manassas Campaign without understanding the Seven Days Battles, and if you want to draw it even further back, you can't understand the Seven Days Battles without the Peninsula Campaign. Um so you know, I I think the lines really blur um, between all of these campaigns as to where one begins and where one ends. But uh, you know, ultimately, by the end of it, you have three successive large uh, strategic campaigns: the Seven Days Battles, the Second Manassas Campaign, and the Maryland Campaign, that uh, just suck the life out of both armies. Uh, for a long time, and claim over you know ninety thousand casualties between the two sides in a span of just three months, and you've got soldiers that are marching almost nonstop, um, marching and fighting nonstop for for up to three months uh, at this point. But um, I, I do think that that Cedar Mountain is um, kind of an in between battle. It's it's not quite the start of the Second Manassas campaign, I would say, but it's also not quite the end of the Peninsula campaign. Uh, of course, you know Jackson will will hold on to the field for a time after Cedar Mountain, but then ultimately fall back. And so there really is no hard line that's drawn as to sort of when you when you follow a military campaign, a lot of times you see that there's you know the, the starting line, if you will, between the two armies, and then one army usually falls back and another army advances. But Cedar Mountain doesn't do that. It actually, while the Confederate Army is going to advance during the majority of the Second Manassas campaign, Cedar Mountain. Actually, in in essence, forces the Confederate Army back, um, in a way. So it's almost like a false start, if you want to say that, for the Army of Northern Virginia. And then it's going to restart, you know, um, uh, about a week later or so, as Lee is really then focused on trying to get um, to Pope. Uh, also, by that time, by the time of of Cedar Mountain, when Cedar Mountain is fought on August 9th, Lee has not fully committed to. Uh, attacking Pope's army yet. He's still not sure what McClellan is doing down in the Virginia Peninsula. And it's not until August 13th that Lee is going to join Jackson's portion of the army north of Richmond. So Cedar Mountain is sort of an odd in-between battle, but it it certainly sets the stage for the main participants of the second Manassas campaign, which of course is going to be John Pope, uh, Stonewall Jackson, and Robert E. Lee. You know, if
2: you've studied military theory in the 20th, 21st century, and even going back into the late 20th century, 1990s, um, one of the buzzwords in, you know, some of the academies, um, some of the buzzwords in some of the officer programs is asymmetrical warfare. And I think for me, the the campaign um, is very asymmetrical. Um, for John Pope, and what becomes the Army of Virginia. For me, the second Manassas campaign for the Union uh, begins when Pope is summoned east, because that's the beginning of a chain of events that leads um, to ultimately what occurs on the Plains of Manassas at the end of August. But I, I concur with Kevin that for Robert E. Lee and the Confederate Army, the second Manassas campaign doesn't begin until Lee takes the field, until he arrives with Jackson, until Longstreet joins them, until we, he starts making these attempts to get around Pope's army, um, the campaign for Lee and, and the Confederate forces has not begun yet. So for me, very much, the beginning of the second Manassas campaign is, is asymmetrical, a much earlier start date for um, the Union Army, a much later start date for the Confederate Army. As far as the ending goes, I, I'm not real sure, Kevin, if you touched on that or not. To me, the I think the the campaign is, the end of the campaign is also asymmetrical. I, I think for the Confederate army, the campaign is is over uh, after the the uh, the fighting at Chantilly or Ox Hill on September 1st. Um, Lee's army is, you know, bruised, battered, and beaten um, from months of active campaigning, casualties during the most recent campaign and battle, um, and, and that's when he's going to withdraw and, and Take a few days to decide what to do next. Um, for the Union Army, however, I think the campaign comes to an end oh, just uh, uh, several days later, a little bit, uh, not even several full days later, when McClellan meets Pope outside of Fort Buffalo, and very uh, gloriously and and uh, 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 patriotically with you know his full staff and everybody there on horseback and you know the style that McClellan is known for relieves Pope of command. I think at that moment for the Union Army, the second Manassas campaign officially uh, comes to an end. Um, Did Pope have a little bit more room to maneuver between the Confederate Army and Washington? Perhaps could he have led Lee towards another engagement after Chantilly? Maybe Um, we get into all these speculative what ifs. Um, But again, I think both the beginning and the end of the second Manassas campaign is is asymmetrical based upon which side you're looking
0: at. Dan, you talk about uh, John Pope getting called to the East, and that's sort of the start of the campaign uh, for the Union side in, in your mind. Um, and I want to go back to something you talked about earlier with Pope. Um, uh, and, and to me, in some ways, I've, I've, and I don't have strong feelings about John Pope one way or the other. But I've, I've come to look at him in the same way I look at Ambr- Ambrose Burnside. It's like, there's a lot we can criticize. They're both easy to make fun of, but they do get saddled with some things that weren't necessarily their faults, and as a result, um, they meet you know all sorts of calamity. And it's like you know, and so like there is some a little bit of credit where credit is due for both of those guys, And, and for Pope, I think people forget that. This guy was brought to the east because he'd had a lot of success out west. You know, like here's, you know, it's it's sort of like a preview of why Ulysses S. Grant gets brought to the east, right? Like here's someone who's out west, he's winning, he's doing a good job, he's a known quantity to Lincoln. I want this guy to come out and uh, and you know be a little rougher here, Uh, and and Pope didn't want to do it, and then he shows up and and he he makes these big blustery, boisterous statements, which you know. Are perhaps a little bit of egotism but maybe also just trying to infuse some uh confidence in an army that doesn't know who he is and it just gets read by the room in an entirely wrong way and and so i dan i know you're a pope a pope advocate of pope fanboy as you said yeah um and help us understand like why and how can we look at Pope um in a way that that helps us better understand the campaign rather than just easily dismiss
2: him you know, as Kevin talked about, you know, having to understand these campaigns, you got to keep backing it up. So I think for Pope and what ultimately plays out at Second Manassas, you need to look at his career in the West, as you mentioned. Um, Pope is is very good organiz- organizationally. He has a very um, strong attitude towards being on the offensive, um, moving his troops quickly, um, constantly being the aggressor or on the attack. And so he has some of these um Smaller sized victories, but yet they're very important victories for the Union war effort when they happen um, in the late uh, stages of 1861 and early months of 1862. Particularly the fighting um, that takes place at Island Number Ten. You know, earlier in the program tonight, you know, Kevin talked a little bit about the the difference in casualty numbers between First Manassas and Second Manassas. Much could be the same about Pope's victories in the West. You look at, um, you know, the size of of the units that are involved in these these engagements and the number of casualties and despite being a victory for Pope, they don't seem like very significant actions but they're significant enough in the mind of the Lincoln administration um, that how he handles his army, how he organizes it, how he is aggressive on the battlefield, um, how he kind of uh, goes above and beyond to get ahead of of, of scheduled uh, troop deployments and marching timelines and constantly putting pressure on the Confederate front, um, you couple all that together, and it seems like a winning combination to, to the Lincoln administration. Where the train goes awry for us in, in popular Civil War history is um, we, we lose some of those comparisons, right? So, you know, when Pope comes to the East and he's saddled with these these units, what becomes the Army of Virginia, I mean, they're not nearly what Pope's been working with in the West. Um, the Army of Virginia, some of these units have just been absolutely thrashed by Stonewall Jackson in the spring of 1862. In the Valley Campaign, he's got pretty high-ranking officers that have no military background. They are political appointees um, that are in, in charge of these men. You've got other aspects of what becomes the Army of Virginia for guys that have been on you know, duty guarding train lines um, that haven't seen heavy combat yet. Uh, and you couple all of this with the fact that when Pope finally comes east, these guys haven't been supplied, enlistments are up, morale is so low, the statistics alone on the number of regimental and brigade level officers that are on furlough and leave, not even with their men at the front, uh, is astronomical. So when Pope comes east and you know Lincoln and Stanton pitch him the plan of combining these units, making it the Army of Northern Virginia and going after Lee's army, you know, Pope says there's just absolutely no way that these units are going to be uh, able to fight uh, anytime soon. He couples that with basically saying that he's not going to work with McClellan. And um, if, if, if Lincoln and Stanton can't get rid of McClellan, then you know he doesn't want this command either. So he doesn't want the command because the units aren't good, which I, the data bears out, the primary sources bear out. He doesn't want to work with McClellan. It's oil and water. Um, And he wants to be able to be uh, in charge or an overall command of the larger Union war effort picture uh, in the East. And something that I had mentioned earlier, that there's this constant grasping for more political and and military power within the command structure. Um, Pope has a large ego, and he's always constantly looking to to, to rise through the chain of command. And I, I think this is the opportunity he's been waiting for. I think for for us today, though, that, you know, where some of these cheap shots come at him is just from a lack of understanding of the day-to-day of what Pope's going through in June and July of of 1862. Um, You know, couple that with with some of the things that I just mentioned, some of the political intrigue. And, you know, Lincoln's not 100% sold on Pope. A lot of folks don't know that Lincoln makes a secret trip to West Point to go to talk to Winfield Scott. Now, the conversation's not recorded. But many uh, contemporaries of the time allude to the fact that Lincoln is going to, to West Point to interview Winfield Scott about John Pope. Is he the right man for the job? And Lincoln makes his return back to Washington from this secret excursion and boom, Pope gets the job. So we can only say that Winfield Scott probably says, yep, he's the man for the job. So you've got all of these different things that are are, are conspiring to getting him into command of this position. And and I think what a lot of us don't know about the June and July day-to-day going on of, of Pope's backstory allows us to make those cheap shots.
0: Much I mean, media. he's he's
2: eminently quotable, and all of his
0: quotes make him sound like a buffoon. You know, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kevin, I'm going to ask you both about Robert E. Lee here in a second, but Kevin, let me ask you: is uh, you have a less charitable view of uh, of Pope? Um, any reason why we should try to look
1: at him in a more empathetic light?
2: Be gentle, okay. Kevin.
1: <laughs> um, yeah. No, I do think there is one thing that is that I really have come to notice in reading about the second Manassas campaign, some of it is definitely John Pope's doing, but some of it is not as well as you think about the principles of war. Now, again, you know, civil war generals didn't have these principles of war spelled out, but everybody knew essentially what they were like objectives. And that's where I'm going. You know, having a clearly defined objective, John Pope is in the field What he comes into the field, any July 28th, July 29th, and he's out. He's, you know, he's ousted September 2nd, 1862. He's in the field for barely over a month. Um, I don't have the exact count on me, but if you look at constantly what Pope is doing, both what he is instructing his core commanders to do and what he is being instructed to do by Lincoln and Halleck and Stanton back in Washington, Pope's objectives are constantly changing. And that's no way to win a campaign. When Pope is told initially to go in, in the direction of Gordonsville and Charlottesville to try and harass Confederate supply lines toward Richmond and, of course, try to relieve some pressure on George McClellan's army outside of Richmond. And then later on, once Pope falls back behind the Rappahannock River line, he's told not to abandon that line unless he absolutely has to. Well, eventually, of course, he does have to do that once Jackson breaks the supply line of the Orange and Alexandria Railroad. Pope has to pull back away from that. Pope is then going to be essentially flailing about and this is where i differ from dan a little bit i think by august 27th pope is is really losing the campaign he's losing control of the campaign by that point i think it's earlier it's even before the armies engage on the actual quote-unquote second manassas battlefield um but Pope's objectives change constantly. He's trying to figure out where Jackson is. He's sending his troops first toward Gainesville, then toward Manassas Junction, then toward Centerville. He's changing it constantly because the situation is constantly changing. Um, and and what you look at I think with Pope is if you think about the grand stage of the Second Manassas campaign that's being waged from roughly Gordonsville up to just the, you know, the outskirts of Washington DC, it's a very it's a large space. For yeah. these two armies to wage a military campaign against each other, and I—I I don't even think Dan can deny, you know, when you look at the hierarchy of Civil War generals, I mean, Lee ranks higher than Pope. Yes, that's not a knock on Pope. Um, Pope, when he's operating in this larger sphere, he has more time for his mistakes to catch up uh, to what what Lee is doing, or for more time for him to to rectify. Some of the mistakes that he makes or more time for him to make command decisions that are going to influence the campaign. And by the time Lee has pushed the envelope and pushed the war into northern Virginia, north of the Rappahannock River, that window shrinks constantly for John Pope and Pope doesn't have as much space to operate. Uh, His his errors are magnified because any errors that he makes, Lee's able to pounce right on top of him because the the space between the two armies has just completely shrunk. Um, At this point, but uh, so so Pope is is forced into a box, both literally by Robert E. Lee and figuratively by Lincoln and Stanton and Halleck, um, because ultimately, by the end of the campaign, Pope's objective, again, one of these many changing objectives, Pope's objective is to bring about the reunification or the unification, I should say, of the army of Virginia and the army of the Potomac Pope's best way of doing that is not to fight at 2nd Manassas. It's to pull back behind Bull Run to Centerville toward Washington and reunite the armies. Uh, That's his objective. But when you look at the political side of things, Pope is not brought east to fall back to Washington. Now, that's never spelled out in his orders, but of course, for John Pope, who's, again, you think about this, this waging of the war between McClellan's viewpoint of the war and Pope's viewpoint of the war, Pope falling back to Washington and not fighting a battle against the Confederate Army, a major battle, is an admission of defeat. And that's something that comes about politically uh, for Pope. And so Pope can't fall back behind Bull Run unless he absolutely has to. And so he's he's figuratively been put in this box by by the Lincoln administration uh, at this point too. And and again, when he's when he's squeezed into that box between the Lincoln administration on one side and Robert E. Lee on the other side, it just ultimately really spells disaster for John Pope.
0: And we've talked a bit about Pope. I want to talk a bit uh, bit about Lee. Um, And I'll go back to the model you guys forwarded earlier about, you know, kind of this grand sweeping narrative of the seven days through second Manassas and the Maryland campaign. And, you know, if we look at, seven days and you know there we've got the robert e lee who's now taking command of the field army for the first time and very aggressive we can look at the the lee of the maryland campaign and you know high stakes going into maryland um what's the robert e lee look like in between those two
1: during this part of that grand sweep um kevin i think one is desperate but i think that's robert e lee's card that he plays throughout the war uh, is he knows, he's very well aware of the stakes, um, thanks to information that's provided to him once McClellan's army begins leaving the peninsula, and then information that he is going to get from when Jeb Stewart will capture some of John Pope's dispatch books uh, at Catlett Station. On the night of August 22nd, Lee is very well aware that the Army of the Potomac is coming to join the Army of Virginia. And so initially... um. Time time favors Robert E. Lee and that, you know, these two Union armies are so far apart between Pope North of Richmond and McClellan South and East of Richmond that Lee has time to try and knock out one of the two before they can reunite. But eventually, once the move is made to concentrate both armies in Northern Virginia, then the clock starts ticking against Lee. And so Lee recognizes that he has to move. He has to do something because Lee is, you know, Lee, I think... Uh, even at this stage in the war, he he knew that the the clock was ticking on the Confederacy, that they had to win a, a decisive battle, a decisive campaign quickly, because eventually the resources, the numerical superiority of the North were going to take hold, and it was nothing that anybody could have done to stop it. And so Lee knows that he has to operate quickly to try and defeat Pope's army before Pope's and McClellan's army can come together. And, you know, that's a stressful situation for anybody, but really Lee is able to orchestrate it well. Um, And it's not just the calls that he makes it's calls that Longstreet and Jackson and Stewart make as well. And I think what you really see with the army of Northern Virginia, um, I mean, I'll, I'll just say it up front. Sorry, Chris, you might not like this, but second Manassas to me is Lee's greatest victory. It's the best. best that the army of Northern Virginia is going to operate during the course of the war. Um, And, you know, a lot is made of Lee dividing his army in the face of Joe Hooker's army at Chancellorsville. And that's absolutely true. But, you know, Jackson and Lee's divided portions of the army at Chancellorsville are roughly a few miles apart. Yeah, they have the Union army between them. But when Lee sends Jackson on his march around Pope's army, uh, they are dozens of miles apart from each other at this point the fact that lee is able to that jackson is able to accomplish his objectives and then that lee with the rest of the army is able to find jackson unite the army and put the army in an absolutely wonderfully advantageous position to not only defeat pope's army but to nearly destroy it just goes to show how well this army is fighting at this point again to me this is the peak of the army of northern virginia during the course of the war it's not all downhill from here But this is the highest point that they will reach, in my opinion, during the course of the war. Um, And I should just say, to that point, August 30th, 1862, in my mind, is the darkest day of the Civil War for the United States. Not only do you have Pope defeated on the plains of Manassas, but you have a Union force under Bull Nelson that's defeated at Richmond, Kentucky. That very same day, of the 7,000 federal soldiers that Nelson has with him at Richmond, 5,000 of them will become casualties, most of them captured. That's yeah. a bad single day for the United States on August 30th, 1862.
2: Yeah.
1: Dan, how do you assess Robert E. Lee during this period?
2: I completely agree with Kevin um, that this is probably the height of Robert E. Lee, the Army of Northern Virginia, and the Confederate War effort. But I also think that it, it challenges us as historians to redefine the um, what victory is, you know, when we look at Civil War battlefields uh, and and engagements, we normally go by casualty numbers and who retains command of the field at the end of the battle to determine the victor. Um, Robert E. Lee's casualties, the Army of Northern Virginia's casualties at Second Manassas for an army that spends, you know, two and a half days fighting um, on the defensive are appalling. Um, The losses in Jackson's wing of, of the Army of Northern Virginia are absolutely horrendous, and one of the things that that Kevin and I really started talking about the last couple of weeks is a study research needs to be done. Uh, are the the implications of those losses on the Maryland campaign and the fighting that's at at Antietam? Um, how many junior grade officers and non coms are lost at Second Manassas, and the guys that f- fill those slots are brand new. There's not even time to adjust before they're going in this horrific fight uh, at Antietam and, and for some at South Mountain on the 14th. So, um, you know, the, the idea of of the Confederate Army maintaining the battlefield on the 30th and 31st definitely shows a clear sign of victory. If you look at the casualties, though, you may you scratch your head a little bit and, and say, well, Dan and Kevin, how is this a, a traditional clear-cut pinnacle moment defining victory for the Confederate Army? Um, One of the other things I I think that that makes um, Lee so great in this campaign is also tied to Antietam that we have not touched a lot. And and even in Kevin and I's book, um, it gets maybe a half of a sentence, um, and that is in relationship to the hero of Antietam, um, perhaps the most important Union officer at the battle, a major general by the name of Ambrose Burnside. you know, Burnside's effect on the second Manassas campaign is wholly ignored. But following the events of of, of May and June and, and even Malvern Hill on July the 1st in 62, in, in as as Lee begins to contemplate what to do next, he knows that he's got a threat from Pope and this new army. He knows that uh, he's received intelligence that McClellan is leaving the peninsula and going to be uniting um, with Pope, uh, as Kevin so eloquently discussed, but the other threat that Lee is concerned about is Ambrose Burnside's command in Fredericksburg uh, at this time, that 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 Lee is basically going to be boxed in in a classic military pincer movement. Burnside is to march south from Fredericksburg, McClellan is to move back down the peninsula, and Polk is, is attacking his supply lines through Culpeper County. Um, it's the end of the Confederacy. Uh, so, you know, Lee's strategic genius in selecting the right target in August of 1862, being able to read McClellan so well that he knows McClellan's not going to make a second attempt on Richmond, to be able to send Jackson uh, out towards those rail lines out in Culpeper County, um, to be able to reinforce Jackson continually stripping his own front in Richmond by by sending Hill's division uh, out to support Jackson um, pretty much writing off Burnside as a threat and solely targeting the destruction of Pope before McClellan can get unloaded in DC and Alexandria um, I really think shows Lee firing on all cylinders during during the summer of 1862.
0: One of the things that I've always thought too was really important about uh, Second Manassas for Lee is that, um, you know, here's the win that that almost makes Europe declare uh, independence for for uh, for the South, and they're like, well, "Well, just give it one more time, one more time." Mm-hmm. And of course, Antietam's a setback in that, but by this point, Lee's strung together such impressive victories that he can sort of politically survive Antietam, and then get that next victory at Fredericksburg and then on a chancellor's So like, um, you, you know, it, it really does a lot to kind of secure and cement his position as commander of that army. And I think it also is, is really key in that, you know, Pope gets replaced, McClellan gets reinstalled, which in effect, once you get through the Maryland campaign, um, buys the Army of Northern Virginia a couple months to catch its breath because McClellan's the guy in charge, and he's not especially yeah. aggressive after that battle. Um, and so like there are there are a lot of repercussions to Second Manassas that help Lee out in ways we don't necessarily think about. Um, we've been talking a lot on the grand scale in the campaign, If we're going to just really drill down for a second. Is there a component of the battle itself that each of you might recommend folks take a closer look at?
2: I can tell you Kevin's already. Before, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, Chris, I'm going to show you my card. Don't let Kevin see it, but I guarantee you it's going to be the right card that he's going <laughs> to go with. And I bet it has to do with August 30th, 1862. So here we go. Go ahead, Kevin.
1: Yeah, I've I've got two um one I think is is ground that um that Dan and I were walking recently is um the left end of the Confederate line along the unfinished railroad where, um, it was mostly Maxie Gregg's South Carolina Brigade uh, around the area known as just a rocky knoll is how Greg South Carolinians described it very intense fighting there on August 29th part of these repeated federal attacks against Jackson's line on the 29th that ultimately they're not able to break um but August 30th to me is really, um, uh, fascinating. I think, uh, particularly one, one particular aspect of, of August 30th is Fitzjohn Porter's attack at the deep cut, uh, there on the afternoon of the 30th. And I say that for a lot of reasons, it's interesting, um, to me, but one is, I, I think that it's, it's very much glossed over, you know, we've touched on the historiography of the second Manassas campaign. And there's a lot of focus on everybody knows about, you know, if, if you, You dive down from the people, visitors to Manassas battlefield. They come for first Manassas. They know about the civilians, the first major battle of war in Stonewall Jackson. If you go the second level down, they know about second Manassas battlefield. They know about Stonewall Jackson and the unfinished railroad. Um, And that typically is mostly August 29th. Uh, And then you kind of move from the fighting on August 29th. Pope's not able to break through Jackson's line. And then... James Longstreet shows up and assaults the federal left, and that's the drive toward Bull Run and the Stonehouse intersection and whatnot. But left out in that is the largest federal attack of the battle, and Here that's the, the Porter's <laughs> attack on the deep cut, uh, Fitzhound Porter's attack at the deep cut, and portions of the Fifth Corps and also portion, portions of Irvin McDowell's corps uh, attacking – Sort of just left of center of the Confederate line at this point, uh, just northeast of the hinge of where Jackson's and and Longstreet's lines come together. For me, it's it's a very evocative place. The Park Service has done a really nice job of clearing that out lately and opening up those view sheds so that you can really see the terrain and what it would have looked like. Uh, on August 30th, 1862. There's some great walking trails there at site of one of the only monuments on the Second Manassas Battlefield. Um, and it's it's just a, a a fascinating attack. And I would actually argue we've been talking about the lack of historiography for a long time, partially because of that attack at the Deep Cut. Um, in the 1800s, shortly after the Civil War, I haven't done the math on this, I'll admit, but I think I could make the argument that second Manassas is the most highly publicized battle that's talked about after the Civil War, even more so than Gettysburg, for the simple reason of Fitz John Porter's uh, court-martial that takes place in, you know, eventually he's court-martialed in January of 1863, but then Porter's 23-year fight to try and correct that, uh, in his opinion, uh, leads to the Schofield Board in the 1870s and 1880s, and I've been going through Uh, going through back that, uh, again and reading through it. And I mean, if, in my opinion, if you want to know how a civil war army functioned from 1861 to 1865, read the transcripts of the Schofield board. This has everything in it of what were roads like, what was the order of March for different brigades? How fast was a brigade supposed to march in terms of miles per hour? I mean, it has everything and this takes up thousands and thousands of pages. It goes all the way to the halls of Congress. It's talked about in newspapers all over the, the place. And so the deep cut is one of the most detailed places that's written about and talked about by veterans after the war for the very reason that it is the, in some ways, the epicenter of the Fitz John Porter versus John Pope um, fight that, that will go on from 1862 all the way to 1886.
0: Kevin, I understand that someone's uh, uh, thinking about writing a really cool book about that. Is that, is that true? Yeah, I
1: am. Uh, I am working on that. Um, somebody on this podcast is pushing me to do that uh, in a good way, though. Um, but yes, I, I mean, I, I will admit I have found the story of, of Fitzgerald Porter to be fascinating. Is he perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, and that's where Dan and I always kind of jaw back and forth at each other with with John Pope and Fitzgerald Porter. But I mean, it, it really is an incredible, incredible story. Uh, and and again, the the detail that is talked about when these veterans come back, either during the the original court martial trial in 1862-63 or in 1879-1880 with the Schofield board, the the detail that they cover is just phenomenal. I mean, it really is riveting stuff. Um, you know, if if you want to dedicate yourself to reading about three thousand pages worth of transcripts, it's all for you. Um, but uh it's really good stuff. So that's why I'm I'm fascinated by the deep cut, uh is just the amount of detail that common soldiers, colonels, general officers go into uh, about that fight.
0: And I should point out too, there's actually a a specific volume about the um Fitz John Porter trials and the ORs if folks are interested in looking at that too. Uh Dan, is there a, a favorite spot on the battlefield
2: that you really like to zone in on? Yeah, so Kevin gave two. I'll, I'll give two as well. And and it also ties into, uh, you know, Kevin, I'm going to tell him how, how big of history dorks we are. Uh, for, for To celebrate the release of our book, Kevin and I got together and we decided to hike the battlefield. Um, you know, it was misty, kind of rainy out, but, you know, upper 40s. And as I mentioned earlier uh, in the program tonight that you know, a lot of the the assault routes or the attack routes of uh, of the federal army are, although preserved, um, the ground doesn't look today in 2024 as it did in, in 1862, and and most of it has become a, a really impenetrable uh, impregnable um, second growth forest. Um, so one of the things that we did was um, hike my ancestors' units, a uh, brigade uh, that the brigade belonged to. We followed his approach uh, from the starting location all the way to. The attack on the unfinished railroad. So for me, uh, the first place I would consider is a little, a little bit uh, in the area where Kevin discussed for August 29th, uh, and that's really the the federal assaults on the federal right flank or against the the Confederate army's left flank. We've um, got a, a ton of of units in there that will become quite big units in other places during the war. Uh, the 48th Pennsylvania. We know them, you know their mine, the the mine at Petersburg. Uh, my ancestors unit the 100th PA, who, who serves both in the Eastern and Western Theater. Um, you see a lot of, of big name officers that arise rise through the ranks, um, such as David Bell Burney. Uh, we see uh, Phil Kearney. Uh, we see uh, James C. Robinson. You see uh, uh, Noggle. We see um, Robert Milroy on the 29th. So you see a, a whole host of who's who. In the coming years of the war on the 29th, so you know, really north uh, of the, the Confederate center on the 29th for me is a special spot. And then um, on the 30th, it would definitely have to be uh, Chin Ridge. Um, as, a, as a native Ohioan, as a Buckeye, uh, McLean's Ohioans uh, on on Chin Ridge just uh, you know sacrificed themselves um, to ensure the that this Confederate onslaught on the 30th by Longstreet's wing the Confederate Army is, is slowed down enough and, and what those Ohioans do and and later other units from, you know, Zealous Tower, B Towers Brigade and, and some other federal units that are sent in that area to Chin Ridge um, is they basically, they snatch a complete victory from Lee's Army. Um, you know, the objective on the 30th for Longstreet is Henry House Hill uh, and the fighting, uh, the obstinate defense uh, that the federal units on Chin Ridge put up um, sets Longstreet's attack so far backwards uh, uh, into the afternoon that, and, and and so many casualties and energy expended uh, that Longstreet just isn't able to get to that final push successfully over the Sudley Road and to capture Henry Hill um, before darkness. So, Chin Ridge, August thirtieth. Any of the federal attack routes on the on the uh uh, the federal right to the confederate left on the 29th those are special spots for me
0: you mentioned Longstreet, and and you know people think of him as a defensive general and like second manassas is like one of his best days of the whole war and he's on the offense i mean what a hammer yeah um kevin let me ask you to give a little pitch for a a kind of an out of the way portion of the battlefield and that would be kettle run which uh, is in your office, basically.
1: <laughs> yeah, I have the uh, the honor and the pleasure of being able to work on the Kettle Run Battlefield, where my office sits. Uh, so the Kettle Run Battlefield is part of the Bristow Station Battlefield Heritage Park, which is managed by Prince William County. Uh, it's a 140-acre park, uh, not too far away from Manassas National Battlefield, so definitely come and see us. We have about a mile and a quarter walking trail that traverses pretty much the entirety of the Kettle Run Battlefield, which was fought on August 27th, so that's in reaction to Jackson cutting the rail line at Bristow Station on the night of August 26th. John Pope is going to turn his army around and basically decide to focus on Jackson, and not so much ignoring Longstreet, but forgetting about Longstreet for a little while, to try and bag Jackson. Um, so it's It's not a well-known fight uh it is not the bloodiest of, of fights only about 600 casualties between the two sides on the afternoon of august 27th but it is in my opinion it's it's the battle that really john pope uh becomes fixated on it john pope arrives on the battlefield at the end of the fight he sees jackson's uh the the lone division that jackson leaves behind at bristow station under richard Ewell withdrawing and uh that is to me john pope's sees that he can drive Jackson from the field he can win and he sees that he has just done that and it's shortly after that that Pope orders the concentration of his army on Manassas Junction and it's where Chris I think you said it earlier uh John Pope is quotable for better or worse yeah where he issues the orders uh for the next morning that uh, his army is going to converge on Manassas Junction and we shall bag the whole crowd as he puts it uh, so that is the, uh, the Kettle Run Battlefield. It's, um, I mean, it's of the two battles at Bristow Station, it is definitely my favorite of the two. Um, it, it's a really fascinating little fight, but definitely come out and see us at Bristow Station Battlefield. We're open seven days a week, sun up to sundown, and we offer tours throughout the summer as well. Um, but, uh, you'll, you'll probably see me out there. And if you come out there on the afternoon of August 27th, no matter how hot it is, I will be out there walking the fields of Kettle Run. You
2: know, there's also... With a quote like Bag the whole crowd," it's an appropriate location for the future John Pope equestrian uh, <laughs> monument that will be constructed.
1: So we have talked homo. about the designs of of this memorial, and uh, we have, yeah, yeah. You know, John Pope laying on the railroad tracks uh, as the trains comes by isn't exactly the greatest memorial design, Dan. But you know, we're gonna <laughs> roll with it.
2: <laughs> I think there was also mention of like a donkey in like reverse position or something like that. I don't know, you know. Uh something something like that as well. But we'll we'll get it all figured out.
0: I can't wait to find out the design you guys come up with. Uh before we wrap up, uh any final thoughts? Anything you want people to think about as they uh, pick up your book and read it? Uh Dan?
2: Yeah, I, I I think uh before I give that final thought, uh again to thank everybody in this project. It was a very long time coming. And and hopefully one of the things that folks walk away with this evening is just how big. The campaign and battle truly is, and so you know there's a lot of, of of lot of niche experts out there that that helped Kevin and I along the way. Drafts of the manuscript being read, uh, big thanks to John Hennessy for for reviewing the manuscript and giving us some insightful comments um, and and challenging us on some of our interpretations, which um, you know is really the fun part uh, for us in and telling this story. So uh, a big thanks to to you, Chris and. And Ted and and John and so many other folks uh, to get in this project across the finish line. Uh, I guess for my final thought then uh, about picking uh, this book up is is to really walk into it with an open mind. Um, you know, don't be afraid of of all the unknowns of Second Manassas because there are a lot of them. You know, uh, John Hennessy's book Return to Bull Run, you know, written in the '80s, I believe it came out now late '80s. Um, you know, has really been the only big work Scott Patchen focused on Chin Ridge uh, around the 2010s, um, but really a complete narrative history. It's it's been a long time coming. And and, uh, Kevin and I's book um, is going to cover a lot of ground in just under 200 pages and come into it with an open mind and uh, be ready for some things you probably haven't heard of before, um, some wonderful uh, quotable John Pope moments uh, throughout the narrative and um, some really good firsthand uh, primary sources I think one of the things Kevin and I have worked on several times now and some of the books we've, we've co-authored together is is bringing some um, images of soldiers that haven't been published in a while or published at all uh, and sharing their, their thoughts and their their moments and their experiences um, at these places. So um, we hope that uh, you'll enjoy Never Such a Campaign. Kevin?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll just echo what Dan says. You know, I, I like to say, um, you know, there's always one name on the cover of books or in this case, two. Well, actually, I guess we have John Hennessy because he wrote the forward, too. So, three, uh, but it, it's it's a lot more than three people that work to put together this book. And so, we are really appreciative of everybody, Chris, yourself included, that was able to help us get this book over the finish line and uh, turn it into a, a product that I. I was really excited to get the boxes and open them up. And I think it turned out really well Yeah. in terms of the, the book itself and what I hope people will get from it. I think one thing that's a staple of the emerging civil war series is not only is this a good book for you to read in the comfort of your armchair, but we hope it will get you out of your comfort zone a little bit and driving into some Northern Virginia traffic to see <laughs> the uh, in central Virginia too to see the sites of the second Manassas campaign and to just really get a sense of just how vast of a campaign this really was Um, we have driving tours that take you around the second Manassas battlefield and it's not your standard tour we take you outside of the park to a few sites to be able to see that but we have a campaign tour as well that will take you all the way from essentially Cedar Mountain uh, all the way to Manassas National Battlefield including following the route of Jackson's march around Pope's army on August 25th and 26th and I've driven that route multiple times, and every time I drive it, I am just absolutely shocked at how much ground these soldiers were able to cover in a matter of less than two days, uh, 36 hours ultimately. And like I said, you know, so much of it, there's a lot of preservation um, uh, problems going on right now in Manassas, a lot of pressure on Manassas National Battlefield and the sites associated with that. Um, But there's still so much of this campaign that you can see. And as you're driving along these roads, in some cases, dirt roads, you can just feel uh, the energy of of these people that performed these acts over 160 years ago. And it really is just a special story to be able to tell. And I'm honored that I got to be able to tell this story alongside Dan uh, as part of the Emerging Civil War series. Well, we
0: look forward to more great storytelling from both of you in the years to come thank you both for the great work you did i really enjoyed the book and enjoyed working on it and uh, it's a treat to be able to share it with the public so i hope they take that book out on the field as you suggest kevin and uh, uh open themselves up to some new insights as, as dan suggests so thanks for being with us today fellas thank thanks you for us. having us absolutely for kevin pollack and dan Welch. i'm chris Mikowski for the emerging civil war podcast thanks so much for being with us we'll see you online and on the battlefield and before we wrap up, let me say thanks to our sponsor, Civil War Trails, the world's largest open air museum with sites in six states, more than 1,500 places to visit the Civil War on your terms, explore some great terrain, and some great hospitality while you're at it. Plan your trip now by downloading a brochure at Civil War Trails. Org. Thanks to our producer, Edward Alexander, our sound engineer, Jackson Makowski, and thanks to the Second South Carolina String Band for providing our theme music. You can find those fellows making great music on Facebook and on YouTube. Just search for Second South Carolina String Band. And don't forget to join us online at EmergingCivilWar.com. More than 30 historians providing free content every day. And we want you part of that mix because we believe in the Civil War. War is America's defining event, and we want to help make sure that people continue to explore and learn from that exciting, interesting, and tragic experience. Join us at EmergingCivilWar.com. For Dan Welch and Kevin Pollack, I'm Chris Makowski. Thanks so much for being with us. If you like what you hear, please be sure to share, subscribe. Uh, Tell your friends, let everybody know that the Emerging Civil War podcast has some cool conversations underway. I'm Chris Mikowski, Thanks for being with us. We'll see you online and on the battlefield.